Lovely. So I am here with Perry Lewis on another episode of Building New Realities. Perry, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. Really looking forward to finding out uh, more about you and more about your company. You are CEO and founder of Mastered, which um, from from what I understand is plugging the talent pipeline, but I'm sure it's doing a lot more... um, than just that. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more just about an intro about, you know, what Masters about and then a little bit about your background and how you got into that. Yeah, of course. Um, that is one of the many problems we are trying to solve is, is that talent gap. So look, Masters, we started it, me and my co-founders in around 2014. Um, and what we've done and how we've done it has definitely evolved over that time. But our mission and like who we serve and why we serve them has always remained the same. Um, we've always been about creators. That's always been people who make and build and craft. Um, we were all of the creative industries. Um, and so that's something that's, I think, pretty close to all of our hearts. Um, and we've also been about careers. So it's not just education for the sake of learning something or for the sake of anything else. It's really, really laser focused on jobs, on work, either getting into your first role or kind of further up, second, third, building your business. It's always been about the career. Um, We started out, um, what seems like a very long time ago now, doing what so many other people did, which was incredible videos with exceptional talents from within the industry. The hypothesis was if you could learn from someone who was at the very top and you could democratize access to that, then you would be able to support people in their careers um, in ways maybe traditional institutions couldn't. Um, And that was good. We did that for a couple of years. Um, But the one thing we learned really quickly was that the human interaction was the part that actually helped transform. And we realized that rather rather than being in, um, rather than being about just educating and sharing knowledge, what we need to be in the business of is deep transformation, um, about transforming mindsets, about transforming skill sets, um, and about creating that behavior change that you actually need to achieve the things you want. So we built out um, a bootcamp format, which was always been remote first. It's always been online. Um, but you had much, much more human interaction at the heart of it. And for us, that was two things. It was mentoring. So it's people from within the industry who have been where you are and can help you get to the next step. Um, and it's coaching. So someone who can help you understand what's holding you back. Um, what are those blockers? What are the limiting beliefs? What are those things that are going to prevent you from getting where you want to be? Um, and that's been a fantastic journey. We've, we've looked after almost 5,000 people mm. from about 95 different countries. So we're not a huge, ginormous kind of school like Coursera or Udemy that are serving kind of millions of people. Um, We're also not tiny. Obviously, community is a really big part of what we do. Um, And then about, oh, probably about 18 months or so ago now, but really accelerated by the launch of COVID, we've been looking at what the future of work looks like for creators. And of course, as soon as you do that, you pretty much very quickly land on the fact that it's immersive, it's 3D, it's real time, 
um, that is where creators are going to be spending their time working. And so we've spent really the last year working with the industry um, and working with creators themselves to develop boot camps that are for people who want to work or already working and want to kind of go further in those industries. Um, it's been a hell of a ride. <laughs> um, and there's a couple of problems I think that we're trying to solve. Um, one is, of course, the talent gap. There seems to be I mean, so many reports just say the kind of lack of real-time skills is what is really preventing so many companies companies from growing. Um, there's some really great, incredible people out there, but maybe they're too expensive, maybe they're a senior, um, and that kind of junior pipeline isn't, isn't coming through. So that is one problem. But I think probably the more interesting problem that we're solving, I want to be able to solve, is how you support diverse creators into that industry. So people for whom um, traditional education doesn't work for them, people who don't feel welcomed by um, perhaps a university or don't feel like they're placed there, um, people for whom because of their family commitments or other commitments aren't able to kind of go in person to something. Um, and so we're really looking at how can you help make sure that if we're building out the metaverse, like the architects of that, have a really diverse set of views um, and stories to tell. Um, and so that's, I think, will be the bigger problem that we're trying to solve is how do you help diverse creators like launch their careers um, so they can have real effect and real change on that metaverse? Wow. Quite a long time there. I felt like I, I went on for ages, but <laughs> I wanted to take you on the journey of where we've been to where we are oh. now. And, and well. I guess it's important. Uh, there's lots of points that came out of that. And I think you ended on a really interesting one, but I'll sort of rewind it a little bit to the beginning. So I'm guessing you started as a creative yourself. What drew you into uh, a more people-centered approach? Well, which point did that transition happen from you being a creator? And what, and what were you a creator in originally? So my, I very first started out as a journalist and as an mm -hmm. editor. So I worked in publishing. Um, my co-founders work in advertising um, and in documentaries. So creating media and content. Um, uh, that was, and I, th I felt like my background, so I used to work at The Guardian. I used to work at Hearst Magazines. Um, a lot of the work that I did was related to content and product. So it was often um, thinking about how those two things work together. Um, when I, I found Adil, um, my very first co-founder and, and joined what he was doing. Um, the, that was, it was a really big moment for me to like leave the, like journalism. It was something that I'd like wanted to do forever, mm. but I could see that there was something like exciting over there that I didn't really know anything about. I knew that there was something else and maybe like leaving an industry that I'd been in for such a long time. Maybe that was okay. Mm. Um, I think there was there was a moment um, that one of our co-founders said, we really, it, what we need to do is we need to focus on behaviour change. We can't just focus on education. Um, there was, I can't remember, we were in the office one time and, and it was such a like poignant moment because it was suddenly a realisation that we, we had to do things very differently because when you're just trying to give people knowledge, it's very different to trying to change the way that they act. That was a, a huge thing and, and almost like by... Um, inadvertently, I had spent a couple of years working at a magazine called Psychologies. Um, I remember that. I used to pick that up in the dentist. Oh, there so we go. Amazing. Kind of like Cosmopolitan, I'm guessing. 
uh, meets was, something heavy and hardbacked. That was pretty much exactly it. And and I got the chance to interview um, and commission like incredible psychologists yeah, and, and therapists, um, people like Oliver Sacks, people like Brene Brown. Um, and I suddenly realized that so many of the things that I had kind of encountered mm. on that bit of my journey suddenly became hugely relevant. Mm. Um, introducing coaching was one of the like most transformational things that we did. Mm. Um, most people join us thinking what they need to do is they need technical skills um, but they leave realizing that the thing that impacted the most was having a coach there with them. Mm. Um, and that was a great learning, I think, for us to realize that that kind of very human centered um, element to what we do was like the thing that we needed to really focus on and really drill down on. So it's fascinating. I mean, I'm really interested in coaching and the psychology of everything. I mean, you have to be as a, as a startup founder, um, particularly when you find yourself walking through the valley, chewing <laughs> grass, uh, which once you've got that as a metaphor in your head, it makes things a bit easier. Uh, <laughs> but, but how do you, um, with your mentoring, I'm really interested because I completely get what you're saying. Rather than, I think I get what you're saying. Uh, you, you know, rather than turn up for like a four-week course, this is how you do a transparency, this is how you optimize a model, boff, off you go. Um, coaching and getting to the root of psychology is, is a very different bag. So mm. I'm interested in your approach to that like do you have um a mentoring uh handbook you know how 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 intense is it do people have to check in every day because behavior change comes from small changing small habits daily um and so again you could fall into the well we're going to teach you behavior change rather than like teach you <laughs> avid we're going to teach you behavior change but actually yeah, yeah. Effective behavior change is with real accountability so yeah. how do you approach that sort of at scale yeah, so our um, so mentoring will happen either weekly or fortnightly, depending on how much time and commitment you can do. So if someone is working with us full time, they'll check in weekly. Um, and, and that cadence is really very similar to the workplace mm. with regards to one-to-ones. So the way that so much of what we've set up is um, is about is about using the platforms that work the workplace uses, using the terminology the workplace uses. Um, if we're trying to get people job ready, getting them using things like Slack immediately because mm. that's how you're communicating in the workplace. Um, getting people into the rhythm of having like weekly or fortnightly one-to-ones with a mentor or a manager mm. and having that relationship where you're presenting work, where you're getting feedback. I, I think that the best managers um, should be people who care about what's going on right now in your world and in your life and supporting you to do your best work. But also also have a view on the long term. Where do you want to go and where does the company want you to go and, and how do we get you there? Um, and so that's the cadence of mentoring. And the cadence of coaching is about every month or every six weeks. Um, and that's on the advice of our coaches, really. They don't want to um, see people more often than that. It's not therapy. It's not counselling. It's not something... Um, in that vein at all, very future focused. Um, and so, yeah, that is about, um, the coaching is less about, let's say kind of sports coaching where maybe you're kind of, your mentor is both your coach and your um, instructor and all things in once. They're two really separate roles. So that person doesn't necessarily have experience in the immersive industries. They are not someone who is going to give you any answers. They are just there to, to ask you the questions. And again, that one of the topics that comes up time and time and time again, I think especially when you're dealing with people who are from 
often traditionally marginalized backgrounds is confidence um, and those limiting beliefs and how to overcome, I guess, the stuff in your own head. So that's what we deal with a lot there. Yeah, which I think is starting to go into some of the information you covered in your opening uh, opening piece uh, um, was when you mentioned diverse views to help shape the metaverse, which I, which is is I mean, say it's an interesting perspective is 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 an incorrect way of framing it. You know, it's in in the world we're in. And we hear more about this, you know, obviously being a, a, a white cis male, you sort of take lots for granted. Mm. That's the way you're brought up and that is your, my programming. Um, mm. um, but it's very, it's so interesting. I go to the word interesting, where it's, it's more fundamental than that. You know, it's kind of like societal, uh, it's the ingredients of society, the fabric of society. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, I do really fundamentally believe it's also like a business advantage. Mm. I think innovation comes from groups of people who have different views and different backgrounds and different experiences. And when you put those completely different things together, you come up with innovation and something creative. And we are working in the creative industries. We are working. In, and I think actually I'll say that for all business, everything is creative. I actually find the term creative and non-creative industries probably, again, there's a whole topic there that we could discuss. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we've got a, we've got a really diverse team ourselves in terms of age, in terms of background, in terms of sexuality. And I, and I think it's brilliant because often someone will come to a meeting with a viewpoint that I had never even considered. Look, I'm a, I'm a white woman. Again, we have got so I've got so much more privilege than so many people, um, and so yeah. When I when you hear those other voices, it's incredible, and I think there's a real richness there. Not just again, you can look at it for society, but I think you can also look at it through the business lens and go, it's good for us. So, in your experience, what's the best way of implementing uh, actual modalities, ways of working, in which you go? With, let's challenge our preconceptions because you know in quite a small team I'm in a small team my company's small 10, 10 people a couple more hires this week 11 people so a lot of the momentum comes from me and the co-founder CEO yeah uh, we try and be open you know every, every day on check-in I'll say you know has anyone got anything they want to raise does anyone need anything has anyone got anything to say yeah but again people get into the habit of ignoring it or they might say i need a new mouse or you know something really trivial what are the best examples you've seen for um upending that a little bit for, for challenging status quo thinking yeah oh great question let me rack my brains for some for some things i mean of course inevitably i think it's it starts with people at the top actually wanting it mm. <laughs> and inviting it and asking for it um, I've definitely been in rooms before where people have said, yeah, we really want to be challenged. We really want to be, um, for new ideas to come in. And then the minute they get challenged, they shut down and go, well, no, there's a reason we can't do this. And I think being, um, being that model yourself is really important. And I def definitely don't always get that right, but, um, that feels incredibly important to do. Um, we've also tried to uh, model like good conflict as well across our kind of leadership team um, to often in meetings to challenge each other really respectfully but candidly um, and make sure that conflict's managed really well. And we show people how 
not simple conflicts but can be, but how important it is. I think we talk quite openly about how like creating like creative conflict is actually really interesting and creative tension is really interesting. Um, and to know that that's part of the process. Um, that's something we've always done. Um, I think hiring for people who want that kind of culture, we're very upfront of the people that we interview and we'll talk to them about what mastered is and what mastered isn't. And one of my co-founders often said, he's often trying to put people off in interviews. Mm. Like you actually want to, share your very strong views on something and, and check that someone wants to be part of that because if they don't they're not going to thrive here um, mm. and I have had people who have wanted to kind of just come and just get, get on with it and not really focus on anything else and just do their own thing and that hasn't always worked because in a, in a team where you want all those voices you do want people who are willing to kind of stand up and say this this and this so um, yeah god I'm sure there's loads more um, but definitely a challenge um, and I think it's a challenge that everyone in the company always has a responsibility for um, to, to bring that, um, to be the person who's making sure that no one is left out, to be the person who's making sure that other views, other views um, to react well when someone challenges in a way that maybe you hadn't thought of before. Mm. I guess like many things, it's uh, allowing or opening to some level of vulnerability because, you know, like running anything, you're like, oh, well, I've guided it this way and then no one can call me out and I'm going to take it this way rather than actually ask. No one asks for criticism in life, do they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, generally, uh, a trait is not to ask for criticism, but if it's done in the, the right way, it does display a level of, uh, of trust uh, and vulnerability with, um, with the people you work with, which is always uh, positive. Yeah, I think something that, and I don't know if, um, I wonder if you've encountered this as well, like being someone who is someone's boss, there's like an int a really intrinsic element of power there. You mm. have power over them. And so I often feel like you have to be very careful with that power because it can mean, it can prevent people from saying what they really think or suggesting something. Um, and so trying to do what I can to like level out that power. So actually it's not seen as a blocker for challenging or suggesting or being unapproachable. Um, and the vulnerability piece, God, I feel like for the first like six years of Mastered, maybe I said that. <laughs> I said, it's really important to be vulnerable. It's really important to like show weakness. Did not live that necessarily at all. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it's so funny when you actually realise what it really is to sometimes talk well, about you, not being you, able to do You things. probably said it hoping someone was going to go, okay, I challenge you. Because yeah. otherwise you've got to keep digging deeper until someone does. Because it's also uncomfortable, I would imagine, for the member of staff to challenge you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but big, big important topics um, to be done. Yeah. Segwaying there into VR, that's one of the um, uh, things of VR that we found actually really interesting is that it's a bit of, a, uh, it's a, bit, it's a, bit of an anonymizer in that you and I can go into VR and it's like, hey, Tim, you're going to VR with Perry. I hear Perry. I know it's Perry. <laughs> But she, Perry doesn't look like Perry. And if, let's say, I hadn't met you, uh, then it's kind of ageless and skinless in a way. You're just like there with this floating head and a pair of hands. And it's like, how do you interact? And uh, I, I find that, you know, that, that's sort of getting more into like the empathy, emotional piece of VR. Mm. Which I, I think it's, it's very nascent. It's really difficult to put any kind of like, you know, 
effectivity stats around that, but it's certainly a uh, a characteristic of the medium that mm-hmm. is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. My, my my wife and I had some friends last year when they did uh, Shangri La in from Glastonbury. They did it in VR. And um, oh, have you did, so you've been to Shangri La yeah. and Glastonbury in real yeah, life? I've been, yes, I have. Right, so you know um, what it's about. Yeah, and uh, like a peak Shangri La experience, you know. Normally happens at three a.m. <laughs> and goes on till you know eleven a.m. But you've had like I mean, the way I describe it is you know when you go to Glastonbury, it's like two days going up. You have your peak Shangri-La experience, <laughs> and then like two days, two weeks, like coming out the other end. Um, whereas with this, we just we're at home. We're like pop, pop, popped on some headsets, had a couple of of, of systems here, and all of a sudden we're on the dance floor in Shangri-La. They rebuilt Shangri-La. And it was it was that completely intense experience of you know I was like you know, a shark avatar with a big flappy tongue, and I was talking to someone from uh, Texas, and we talked to some people from Australia, and just having that kind of mad moment, and 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 also in the sort of skinless uh, dimension, I was dressed as a shark, which I would I would never go into you know. Most places in a shark costume, <laughs> so it, it, it certainly is real. This um, this ability to walk in other people's shoes. I don't. Th- I think. I don't think it is because there were a lot of experience where we're like, hey, come and see what it's like to be a migrant on a boat. It's like really, you know, you're just going to go and do that for half an hour. You know, you might feel moved if you've got particularly gruesome things happening in in front of you, but it's a bit voyeuristic, um, or it's a lot voyeuristic. Um, mm. But actually, the, to have the experience of sort of gelling with people um, was, yeah. was really interesting. It was really good. Yeah, I mean, if they do it again, it was called Lost Horizon, Shangri-La. It was yeah. excellent because my wife was in there, you know, and her avatar was like hot pants and whatever she'd chosen. And she had some grime MCs from East London chatting her up who may not have chatted her up in real life. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, such, such, yeah, such, such huge potential. Yeah. Such huge potential. Um, so, what, what, so recently with, with um, Mastered, you were starting in the video world, the content creation world. When did the sort of XR interest uh, or how did that happen? Yeah. So I, I would say we, we kind of moved to our um, kind of bootcamp format, which was very, very more, ha- very more one-to-one, very more hands-on about six six years ago now um and then these immersive boot camps have been um in in development for, for a year or so 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 relatively recently um yeah i think again that 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 point of covid being a a moment to really reflect on oh, we saw so many people in our community just lose so much of their work um and also personally you 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 think oh what am i doing with my life things are all changing. Is this the moment, is this the, the things that we want to do? And we got together and said, this is, this is what we want to do. This is, this is the exciting thing. This is the mission. Um, and then you start to talk to creators and you start to enroll people and it starts to get very exciting. Um, when they actually start to do work, which is what's just, just started now and just happening. So what's your view on, um, the XR workplace in terms of, uh, demand, in terms of recruitment pipelines, how are you trying to skill people up? So in terms, in terms of what kind of roles, um, people yeah. are kind of thinking about going into. And then just for clarity, what, what sort of demographic, what age of people are typically come to your course? Yeah. So, uh, there's a kind of, there's a couple, probably a couple, three or so different kind of groups of people who I'd say are, are coming to us. The first is 
um, a kind of just graduated university student who is realizing that their degree doesn't actually get them the job or a job um, because they don't necessarily have the skills that are required by some of those jobs. Um, so that that's the first group, the kind of what I would call someone who needs that last mile training. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be able to have some actual skills that will actually kind of showcase their CV, showcase their CV and, and mean that their portfolio is stronger. Um, that's one group of people. And I'd say this, the second group are probably have been working in their industry for, let's say, four or five years. Mm-hmm. Again, have understood that things are changing, um, that actually immersive real time is what's happening. There's a, a producer that we're working with who has seen that like virtual production is taking over everything and he wants to be ahead. He wants to make sure he's upskilling in the right thing first. Um, and then there's probably kind of post 30, I say career switches, um, people who have been created identity wise, they've been creators for all of their life, but perhaps they, uh, work wise haven't been paid creators. Um, and so now again, it's a moment to go. I, I don't, I've got a long, a long set of years ahead of me when it comes to the workplace. I want to be doing something that I want to do rather than working in, let's say law, hospitality or something else that is, is not kind of driving my purpose and passion. Um, so there are different types of groups. Um, in terms of what we are training people for, real time is the core of everything that we do. Um, uh, and I think there's probably three kind of general departments. Obviously, it's like 3D artists, um, it's technical artists um, and it's programmers. Um, I think what we're particularly interested in is especially those kind of technical artist roles where you're part artist, part engineer, you're a little bit left brain, you're a little bit right brain, you're able to speak to technical people, you're able to speak to non-technical people. Personally find those particular spaces very interesting. Um, I think equally when when we've spoken to recruiters and we've spoken to hiring managers, they are the roles that are so difficult to find. Um, spoken to lots of people over the last kind of six to eight months and again trying to trying to find those technical artists who understand the pipeline who understand um, how to optimize things who are able to just learn really quickly and code and have visual sensibilities like it is a literal unicorn you're trying to find unicorns there Um, but they're definitely people that we're looking uh, have our eye out for especially in the admissions um, in the admissions process Everyone has to go through interviews. Everyone has to submit either their portfolios or demonstrate their commitment in some way. Um, And yeah, finding those people who have, let's say, maybe done some coding over here and have a really beautiful um, artwork over here. And you think, oh, that's so exciting because you can see they like both of those things. Um, And yeah, so they're the the kind of people that we have and the kind of roles that they're going into. Uh, Do you have an Unreal or a Unity focus? Ah, the, the big question. Um, so when we were starting out, this was the um, that was a big question. What, what, what do we have to do? We have to be just Unity. Do we have to just be Unreal? And obviously, both of those organisations would like you to choose. Um, but actually, we've just, we've said that we are um, engine agnostic. Um, it's what do people need to do the job that they want to go into. So there are some people who have significant experience in film, TV. 
Um, they're going to be working in film, let's say. It's going to be unreal that they absolutely need. There is no point even then putting them near Unity. Um, there are others who are wanting to go, say, more broadly into XR, let's say, in a kind of more corporate role, um, or they're doing this something that where rapid prototyping is really important and actually being able to work in Unity, that's really right for them. It's really about figuring out where people are going to go and what they need to learn. But for both guys, um, we also do kind of conversion courses. So if you've learned this, how do you then translate that to over here? If you've learned this, how do you then translate that to over here? Um, curious if you've got any strong opinions on on that. No, I think you've covered it pretty much. Like film, film production, AAA is going to be unreal. Fast prototyping, smaller outfits, going to be Unity. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just to have this conversation with you because we're we're just expanding a little bit and um we needed some some entry level like some qa testers so i reached out to university of bryson i reached out to portsmouth where they've all got quite strong game design development courses and actually the sort of the careers um people there uh, or the graduate recruitment i should say um really helpful you know obviously had quite a well-oiled system in terms of getting CVs out, you know, they were, some of them were doing, um, one of them was doing, you know, 5% on, on, on the first six months. So like little, little recruitment fees, <laughs> I won't say which one. Um, but yeah, great. So great selection, lots of first class honors in game development. Um, and we found a great candidate. So really happy about that. But so we have a specific niche, which is which is multiplayer. So you know the skills you need for that are you know Photon.net, Visual Studio. You know there's some specific skills. Mm. So I did float it to them, and we'll probably be following yeah. up on this. Like if your students are interested in the kind of work we do at Future Visual, here are the specific skill sets we need. And also sort of coming up with some documentation and references and even modules internally so we can then feed into those organizations and go, look, this is what we're after. And this is going to, if someone's interested in multiplayer uh, and VR, then this is going to do them well anyway. So I think, you know, if small organizations are, are thinking that way, do you see that as a, as a, as a trend? Obviously, you know more about I mean, recruitment typically for years, you, you, know, you know, the big companies have been going around recruitment fairs and doing all that. So it's not a new science. Mm. But I, I guess with, your, with a very specific set of skills, it, I mean, are you seeing more of that? Are you seeing people like the mill, people like Framestore putting together like little specs and going, right, this is what we want our character artists to do. This is what we want our pipeline engineers to do. And are they, are they providing assets, documentation to uh, academic institutions? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think, um, I think there's seeing, I'm, of the conversations I've had, I've, I've met a lot of people who are very, very keen to give back and support um, young, young talent from a, they want to do it personally. And also from a business point of view, they want to find new great candidates. Um, so lots of, um, uh, lots of goodwill out there. Um, I have found that many organizations are frustrated with how um, slow often um, universities can be to respond um, and to change and to adapt and to, um, yeah, and to, and to work with them. I've heard stories where someone's wanted a small company to go and run like a week's module for them and the business, the CEOs had to say, 
can't give you five days of one of my staff's time. Um, and then I've had other people who have been desperate to work with their local university and they just have meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, by the way, I think course leaders do a, a fan, I've got 4 million jobs to do and working with industry is, is hard enough um, as well as looking after students. Again, there's a whole other conversation we could have there about like the future um, I guess dismantled academic role um, about how actually those people are doing about seven different jobs um, learning design support manager academic expert loads of different things um, and that's something I'm particularly interested in um, is how you uh, how you separate those things to make sure you're very very user first but I digress yes lots of like lots of companies seem very very keen to do that what I'm quite interested in is how you how basically you kind of merge education and employment. Like, how is it that the, either those kind of companies and universities and, and places like ourselves work together? Um, what kind of partnerships do they need to be? What kind of commercial models do they need to be? Like, how do we make things more integrated? Um, do you need recruiters? Is that recruitment model outdated? Or actually, again, do recruiters become trainers and they're the ones providing? Lots lots of big discuss there. I think a question that we talk about a lot, and again, I'm curious on your take on this, is who is responsible for, um, who is responsible for paying for the skills gap? There's a stat out there or something, which I think over the course of our lifetime, it's going to take every one of us about $40,000 to upskill in just what's going to be needed in the changing world that we live in mm. who is responsible for paying for that is it the individual is it the company or the industry or is it governments how do we and i feel like education and training and all sorts is being thrown up in the air at the moment and it's going to come down in different ways and different models mm. ed tech's very very exciting there's lots of interesting people doing lots of innovate lots of innovation and i think so many industry partners I've spoken to are, are looking for that innovation and, and a bit like yourself, you have something to offer. You want to, you want to help, you want to share your skill sets. How can you do that in a way that is effective for you and for the partner and for the individual? Yeah. Big, big, interesting topics there. Yeah, I've touched on something. So um, the next question I was going to ask you is what is the greatest opportunities uh, in your field? And I think you were just starting to get into that with like the innovation Mm. of 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 the marketplace you know moving from um you know that's that's an academic institution that's an employer um perhaps you perhaps you've got more to say on, on what those those opportunities might be might look like yeah um i think there is a there is a really interesting opportunity to re-envision what um what education and training looks like who provides it at what point do you do you have it um, I think traditionally, of course, what we do is we do all of our education at the beginning of our life <laughs> um, in school, possibly in university, and then you go and work for the rest of your life. Well, inevitably, that doesn't work anymore. If all of us are going to have something ridiculous like four or five careers, which obviously when you think about it like that, it gets a little bit draining. <laughs> but if we are all going to change what we do yeah. often the model of how that is done has to change. It is broken, isn't it? Because that does seem to be a more of a reality hmm. these days. It's like the marketplace has changed and as a byproduct, people now have different careers. All right, some people might choose to move hmm. uh, between different hats, but a lot of it is probably the the, the opportunities that are, that are out there or the way yeah. companies can grow really quickly and then disappear, you know, sort of the... Yeah. 
company um, term seems to have changed. Yeah, there's an incredible, um, Stanford University did a really great research project on envisioning what education would look like in, it could have been 2030, it could have been 2050, but it was this idea of like a loop model that rather than it just being, again, you, you have a relationship with a with an organisation at the beginning of your career, that actually the, the, the model is actually more of a loop that you do a little bit and then you go away and then you come back and then you go away and then you come back. Um, and we, we did some, did some, work with the university actually earlier this year um helping them envisage what a university might look like post-covid um and there is i think a real opportunity to turn this in turn places into somewhere that you have a relationship with for for life rather than just in these one moments um so i think there's a really interesting opportunity there obviously i think so much has to change from how things are delivered the organizational structure how things are financed, like it really does disrupt everything when you do that. Um, but equally, I think there's there's opportunities to be also incredibly niche and incredibly focused in the same way, like in direct consumer, you're seeing companies that sell one product and do that exceptionally well. Um, we've often focused on doing that, like do one thing, do it really exceptionally well, and don't worry about growing this, this and this until you have just absolutely nailed that. And I think that's what we're doing now. It's like you focus on one thing, mm -hmm. um, boot camps, you do that exceptionally well, and maybe you never ever have to do anything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. Can you tell me about a, um, a candidate or an employer that changed your approach to your field? Mm. Was there any individual's particular experience that stood out and made you rethink it? It's a really good point. I think every, uh, this sounds really trite, but almost every conversation I have at the moment with employers, like something changes, something clicks, mm -hmm. and I find out a little bit more information than I had the last week. Um, so actually, it's probably not like one standout moment, but I make sure to speak to at least a couple of, a couple of employers every week because I can also then feed that back to our curriculum team and our mentor team to make sure that things are really accurate. And I, I feel like every time I speak to someone, I learn something a little bit new and it evolves things a little bit more. So yeah, not like a really great answer there, but I think it's just so incredibly important. Um, and then on the user side, yeah, again, we speak to, I think something again that um, we focus on and I'd like I've seen examples in kind of traditional institutions where it's not the case being like user focused like when you're building software the user is like at the heart of everything that you do mm -hmm. um, I think in traditional education that has been lost a little bit because of many different reasons um, but yeah getting feedback from our, our students just a couple of days ago I was speaking to a student who suffers with real very bad dyslexia and she was giving me some feedback on how we can improve um, some of the uh, classes that we do um, small things we recorded our session so she could listen back to it later rather than taking notes and again having that like amazing feedback loop with industry but also with participants then we can just be super agile and in the same way that you build software <laughs> you're constantly evolving and constantly changing what you do rather than let's say in a traditional educational establishment where you wait three years and then you change it because you have to go through a big long process of, of doing that change um so yeah, I think the process of doing it is the is the thing that makes the difference. Got you. And um, oh, 
Oh, yeah. So I know as a business owner, you will be laser focused on. Or do you want to play, plug in? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Cool, got it. So I know as a business owner, you'll be laser focused on your product, your company, your candidates, you know, all of that. Um, but outside of that, if you have uh, any any uh, views or, 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 or brain power for it, what, what are you curious about outside of your um, company, outside of your sector? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, at the moment, I'm really curious about art. Hmm. <laughs> I've, I've never, ever studied art in any way, but I've just been trying to, like, understand more kind of the theory of how things have evolved since cave paintings in caves through to Byzantine religious art and things like that. That's something I'm trying in my very small pockets of time to explore a little bit more. Is that the history of art or the emotion behind uh, the, the psychology of art? Oh, that's a great question. At the moment, I think it's more history. But now that you've said psychology of art, I'm way more interested in that than I am of, <laughs> of the other things. Um, yeah, I think one thing I have, have realised, again, <laughs> by speaking to so many of our creators, I'm like, wow, I don't have a creative practice outside of what I do. As I'm sure you'll know, like you just get laser focused on your organisation and what you're doing and your team and your customers and making sure everyone is doing exceptionally and growing mm. and I haven't always found the time for the other and I think that's something that again maybe COVID has definitely taught me is, is to make sure I am taking a step away and to go what are the other things that are exciting so I'm on a bit of a journey actually it's, it's very it's very it's very hard but it would, it would almost seem that it could be perhaps one of your modules that you could you could you could do some work on personally to feedback because it's so easy in our digital world to be all consumed. And if you looked at the power of stepping away from your practice to return to your practice with some level of uh, refreshment. 100%. That's probably, probably was in an article in your psychologies uh, magazine. <laughs> do you know what? It's, it's, I find what we do so meta because essentially we're, what we're about is meaningful growth for right. people. Now, uh, the things that we've done with our team, I suddenly find that something's worked there that could work really well in like the classroom mm. or something happens in the classroom and you think, oh, this could work, work really well with the team. Um, it is very meta. There's lots of kind of learnings all over the shop, which is good. And um, what about you? What do you, um, what do you do for your, what are you curious well, about? I try and get, I try, I mean, I try and get some exercise, just do some exercise. And I'm, I'm always curious about uh, meditation and I'm always curious about body mind uh, interaction. Mm. At the moment, I'm curious about how a low carb diet is making me feel. In fact, mm. how it's making me feel because my, uh, my wife and daughter have been away for the last seven days. And so I've been able to, be the, the primary chef so it means like no bread no pasta no potatoes and uh yeah i'm pretty curious about that that's uh, it's had, it's had a really nice effect so yeah i the curiosity there is um i'm going to get it feeds back into work because what you're trying to do is you're trying to grow um or retain or develop centeredness uh kind of awareness enthusiasm and energy mm. your, your purpose and your mission mm. um so yeah, part of that is is part of that is stepping away from from the machine. So I did, um, and also just the effect of 
setting kind of quite large challenges, things you don't want to do. So I did, I did a thing the, like two weekends ago called the fan dance, which is not a burlesque uh, uh, movement with fans. But <laughs> don't worry, that will conjure up horrible images. Um, but it was, a, uh, it was a hike or a walk across the Brecon Beacons, but it was 26K, 26 kilometres, and it wasn't just flat, it was up and down over mountains. And it was this kind of like quite hardcore endurance thing that I booked in fact, I booked it for last year and like, oh yeah, I'll be ready for that. And then it got <laughs> and I didn't do any training for it. And then I went and did it two weekends ago. And just before I got to the halfway point, I was like, ah, oh, I don't think I can do it anymore. I am, I am, I am dying. I am in it. My feet are killing me. And then I got to the halfway point and turned around and went back and did, did it again. Um, so just little things like that, because that's, you know, that's kind of building resilience. So I'm really, I'm, you know, I'm interested in building resilience Staying, staying yeah. healthy, really, to, to keep, keep growing the company. So, again, I guess we're, we're always feeding back into our mission, into our purpose, but it's by finding, you know, it's by stepping away from it and doing other things that are going to support us. Yeah, and that, I think that's such a challenge, isn't it? Because you step away and then suddenly you learn, after stepping away, you're like, oh, this thing I could put back into this. And then you're like, oh, I was trying to step away. Well, but I mentioned it to everyone on the, on the check-in call and like, you know, there's like two people in, in our company who are like, yeah, sport. And everyone else is like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could challenge them more, uh, more lovingly to, to do something <laughs> like that. Okay, going to get uh, go a little bit sideways now. And if you had a billboard with anything on it to help build a new reality, what would it be and why? Mm. Okay. Um, this is a billboard in a street, you know, like a big yeah. 48 sheet kind of poster. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, and this is because we've had, we've had this conversation before about what we would do with billboards, and I would put some of our creators' work on it. I would put our the the, the projects of the people um, uh, that are coming through. I'd put their work on it because I am so like impressed by some of the work that is kind of coming through and some of the ideas mm. i had an incredible creator the other day talk talk about her wanting to create like a kind of feminist spaceship type game project that was like inspired by georgia o'keefe and i was like it blew my mind to kind of think about the references that she was building and this and i was like oh i can't wait to see it and so i would want to i would want to hero them and their work that's what I would do. Yeah, nice. That that's a really nice, uh, nice response. And if you had a hundred million to spend on a social program with no red tape, how would you spend it? This would be really hard. This would. This would. I was thinking, reflecting on this, um, and I think I would. I think I would amass a group of creators to like build a part of the metaverse mm. so i would i would um i would spend the money recruiting them finding the best people i would give them like living wages so that they wouldn't have to worry about kind of making money or how to feed their families or anything like that so you'd pay them to learn to grow and i would have them build some kind of virtual space and I would be, and I would like to see what they would do that would be so different from the world we have now. Because I would really focus on making sure that kind of diversity of thought was in here. And we had people from all different walks of life, 
from all different sexualities, different genders, from different ethnicities. And I would, as a, like a social experiment, I would love to see how they would like redesign things. There's that, like, I remember reading something about um, cities and how they're designed. And actually, a lot of it is, a lot of how cities are designed is very masculine. It's to do with the way that, that men live and work. And actually, when you have uh, women designing certain spaces, they become a little bit wider and more open because there aren't as many alleys because they're safer and there's space for buggies and things like that. And so when you start to like put that view on the world, I'd be so curious to see what people would invent. Now, inevitably, I'm sure the kind of utopia would in somehow become a dystopia because there is, no thing, there is no thing as, there is no utopia because it's all a dystopia. There is no dystopia because it's all a utopia or whatever that is. But that's what I would love to do. I'd be curious to see what would happen if you rebuilt things. Love it. I think that might be the best one I've heard. It's basically <gasps> universal basic income for metaverse creators. Oh, you have just summed that up so beautifully. Let's go and pitch that. Let's go and pitch that to someone. Um, that's amazing. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> that really would be amazing because otherwise every project you approach is like, well, what does the client want? You know, yeah. what are we trying to do? And what you're always trying to do is facilitate some kind of money generation. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I love it. You've just, summed, you've just like written a deck there. That was beautiful. <laughs> My pleasure. Do you have any favorite theories? Like, I really love Solomon's paradox, where it's easier to tell other people. It's easier to get other people good advice than yourself, which is very mm. true. I find good theories. I what do I like? I always come back to old Maslow, the old Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh yeah. In, in everything, I feel like in so many things, because I often, I often find that we worry about like again as. Maybe when you're trying to be user first, you're often thinking about kind of what need is this product thing fulfilling? Is it just your basics at the bottom or is it the self-actualization? And I tend to find that so many, it's so easy to think about the like very logical, very rational needs that people have. And you can forget about the emotional, um, the needs. I think such a big thing in what we do is I think so many of us have like a need for belonging. Mm. Um, and to feel part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Mm. And that massively informs, I think, how we work at Mastered because I, I want us all to be doing something that's bigger than ourselves. Mm. And I, I always love Maslow because you're just like, ah, oh, that is one of our, it's one of our core needs. I actually don't necessarily agree that you need to have, it doesn't go in that order. There's mm. some criticisms of that. It doesn't need to go in those steps. But yeah, that's always... It always feels like it could do with a bit of an update, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, categories but the language around them because it's like you know if you're looking for fulfillment this way let's say through social media likes you know is that really what you're after would, would yeah. it be better just to go and do a cookery day or something a bit more simple like otherwise it's like i need ten thousand followers i need ten thousand likes to, to yeah I've, I've seen back in the day like some redesigns of it mm. like uh, and actually, maybe I need to go and have a look because I'm sure some visual designers somewhere have like reorchestrated it, so mm. it's it's different in some way. But mm. yes, that. And then I think is it Sapphire Wolf hypotheses? I think that's to do with context and the fact Sapphire, that Sapphire Sapphire Wolf hypotheses, and it's to do with the fact that everything is dependent on context. Oh, yeah. Like everything, everything that you do is just affected by the context that you're in. Yeah. Um. I think anyway, that's. Thinking back from uni, back in uni days, 
Um, but yeah, I like um, the, I like the the, the, solid, the one that you mentioned. Gosh, how true that is! Isn't it true? Have you got any book recommendations for historical mm-hmm. books you've really enjoyed or books you're reading at the moment? Um, the one I'm wading through at the moment is the story of art. Which All is, right, with your um, this is your 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 side project. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the, the name of the author. I think it's Goblick. Uh, I think that's that's his name. E. H. Goblick. It's like a it's like the seminal book on the history of art. Um, although as I go through it, I'm very aware that it is a very kind of I don't want to say colonial view of art, but it's definitely like a very traditional and I feel very aware that when I finish it I need to go and read something else by someone who who comes from a different part of the world who looks at art probably slightly differently so but that and I've just read inevitably well about a year ago now I read Snow Crash um the great novel that I'd never read before and of course as you start exploring the metaverse I wanted to read that yeah Also, also, also worth reading Neuromancer Oh, great. Okay, good. I'll write I actually preferred it to Snow Crash. Oh, wonderful. Okay, that's good. Thank you. And with your, with your understanding of education and diversity, is, is, there, a, is there a book or recommendation um, in that area about learning, mm-hmm. about social needs, or perhaps even just about founding a business and starting a business? Mm. Gosh, there's absolutely not off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Let me come back to that. Um, I mean, there's some really great. I mean, Rachel Cargill on Instagram is uh, she's an academic, a black academic from the US who talks a lot about um, the great unlearning. Mm-hmm. I've learned a hell of a lot from her, especially because it's interesting because she's a, like a an institution agnostic academic as well, which I thought was an amazing term, like not belonging to any one institution, but still. Um, still identifying as an academic but yes I've, I've learned lots from her but yeah there are uh lots of very interesting people talking about that work and and we have again I, I would say a lot of our coaches and a lot of our mentors bring a lot of their experiences as well for that yeah, I, like, well, I haven't heard that phrase the great unlearning but I can mm. guess what it means and that's uh, that's pretty interesting mm. uh, yeah yeah very very interesting phrase that would that would turn in that would uh, correlate with my my interest in meditation where mm. you're just sitting rather than mm. trying to think anyway perry it's been wonderful to talk to you i really really enjoyed our chat thank you for illuminating what you do at mastered and i really yeah, loved your your views on helping to shape build the metaverse and make sure it's an inclusive space Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk. I've got some book recommendations. I've got some big things to go and think about. So I really appreciate it. And great, great, to have, uh, great to have talked about such big things on, on this time. Yeah, lovely. Thanks very much, Perry. Awesome.